Victory. Bully bank runs away from politicians defending people. Even the European Union elites now oppose going cashless. Defence review is creeping fascism, subjugating all of society to war. And Morrison and Sinodinus join the pigs at the war cash trough. Coming up on this week's episode of the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 11th of May, 2023. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by a Citizens Party researcher, Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's show, we have some major victories to announce, um, especially the big one when you make a bank back down. So we're going to talk about what Westpac's decision this week. We're going to give you a very fascinating update from Europe on the their push to go cashless, but how um, when the whole thing's discussed openly... People, even elites, change their mind. Um, and then Richard's got a briefing for us on the Defence Strategic Review, which um, people would have heard about in the last few weeks. Someone has to do the work of reading these things. That was his job, so he's going to brief us on that. And finally, we have an update on our um, discussion a couple of weeks ago about the pigs at the trough of war, because the former Prime Minister has now joined them. All right, and we're going to keep it all under an hour. Before we continue, remember, um, let's help get this show seen far and wide. So like the show, share it as widely as you can on all your social media and emails and whatever. Um, subscribe, and if, if you're not a subscriber, and if you do, make sure you ring the bell icon so that you get notified of updates of this and other content, such as the breaking news from this week. Um, also, please comment. The comments are very important. We appreciate the feedback. So make some make comments below and discuss with each other. And finally, we're about to announce a very big victory. I'm going to tell you how it came about. Um, this is what our party does. This is what the campaigns we fight are capable of doing. We need your support. We really, really do. Um, so the, please click on the donate button below and help us out financially to help make this operation work. We're the only political party in Australia that's funded entirely by the people of Australia. Not the taxpayers, not trade unions, not corporations, not certainly not the banks. Um, and we're the one, because we're funded by the people of Australia, we represent the people of Australia, we are the Citizens Party, so you can please help us that way. All right, that said, let's get into it. Victory. Bully Bank runs away from politicians defending the people, and we're talking about Westpac. Um, I just love every aspect of this story. So Westpac has had a meltdown. Um, our party worked with Dale Webster, the independent journalist, Martin North, the banking expert, uh, to get up an inquiry in the Senate into banks closing their branches. And we wanted people to understand the details of this situation, this, this issue, is, are not as the, like the truth is not as the banks have presented it, right? The banks claim that they're shutting branches because no one's using them and these branches are unviable and everyone's pref everyone prefers digital technology, etc. Well, the... the um, the scrutiny they've come under just since February with this inquiry so far, just that much scrutiny has made one bank, Westpac, cut and run. They've had a meltdown. Essentially, Richard, what they've done is they've said to the Senate inquiry, here's your branches. Stop picking on us. <laughs> Leave us alone. Leave us alone. So here's what's happened. <clears throat> 
Last, ne- sorry, next week. Today's the, like I said, the 11th. So next week on the 17th, Westpac was scheduled, was was summoned, invited, probably it was applied away, but essentially when you get invited by a Senate committee, you should go, mm. was invited to go to Cloncurry for the next hearing, the second hearing of the Regional Banking Task Force mm. um, inquiry. Which, for those who don't know, is up in northwestern Queensland near Mount Isa. Yeah, so I'll go to, I've discovered that too because I'm going to be there. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, um, next Tuesday I'm flying to Brisbane from Melbourne here and then I've got to catch a plane from Brisbane to Mount Isa. And it, that's like a, I mean, that's a pretty long flight. Um, uh, and then I've got to drive, in, drive a bit east to Cloncurry. So they were supposed to, you know, you know, the reason that the inquiry hearing is being held in Cloncurry is because Cloncurry is where Westpac has said they're going to close a branch. Mm. Right. So the first hearing was held in Sale because Westpac had said they're going to shut the Sale branch. The second hearing is being held in Cloncurry because Westpac had said they're going to shut the, the Cloncurry branch. So Westpac got this letter from the committee and said that said, "Please come to the hearing. We have questions for you." Westpac replied to that letter with the following. I, I won't read it out, but this, this the essence of the reply was this. We decline your invitation to appear because we have nothing more to tell you than we already have given you in the last hearing and in our written answers. Now, that straight away, Richard, is quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, who, like, I don't think a normal person, if the average citizen or the average small business was, was invited to attend a Senate hearing, asked to attend a Senate hearing, would be able to say no, right? Westpac thinks it can say no, but Westpac had a plan. And the plan was in the second paragraph. And the second paragraph said, we've decided to not close the branches, the eight branches that we planned to close. And this was the big news. So the eight branches that this inquiry has saved are in the following towns, Gatton, Cloncurry, Ingham, Tully, Denmark in West... So those four are in Queensland, Denmark in WA, Kingston in South Australia, Robinvale and Sale in Victoria. Westpac has basically said, look, we don't want to do this anymore. Keep your branches. We're going to keep them open. Get off our back, right? Um, uh, now, I, I saw this unfolding in the sense that because I attended the first hearing, I'll make this point. There were two banks testifying at that hearing. The, f- the first one was Westpac. The second one was National Australia Bank. The attitudes of the, of the officials, the executives from both banks were very different. The Westpac guy actually looked embarrassed. And go, you can go back and look at our show, uh, the Citizens Report from the, the after the second of March. I would have said that in that hearing, in that citizen, when I reported back from that hearing, the Westpac guy looked embarrassed. The NAB executive, um, Chrissy Jones, a woman, she <laughs> she's an ice queen, mate. She had ice in her veins. She didn't care how she sounded. But I, but I saw the Westpac guy looking quite embarrassed. It was as if he knew that saying out loud in front of the, the victims, in front of the people whose bank he was taking away from them, didn't sound as good as what, how it sounded in the boardroom when they planned it, mm. right? And they, that was real pressure. They felt the pressure. You could see them. He was, look, he was getting redder and redder and redder as, the, um, as the, uh, the, the, the questioning went on. They didn't want to go through that again, Right. Now, um, I'll come back to National Australia Bank in a minute, but this is people power, but it's more than that. And I don't say, because it's easy to say people power. I mean, 
assume what we're trying to do, people, is get you to you know know the power you have and, and, and do something with it. But people power, you know, you can call a mob running amok people power. What we're trying to get people power to be is actually engaged in the political process. We have a political process in Australia, you know, we're governed by a constitution. The parliament is very, very flawed, but there's an aspect that um, that's workable in it if the people engage. And we, we try and get the people engaged in this process. That is actually what's worked here because only what's happened is the people have got engaged. We got up this inquiry and this inquiry has got politicians to actually do their job. And their job um, is something that's foreign to them in this regard. They do, we have a culture in Australia, and Richard's job is to read all the newspapers, and every morning he gives us a briefing on the latest breaking news and swears a lot. Because, what, because most of the time, the things you see politicians doing um, are quite pathetic, right? They, they, you, know, they, you see what is in the interests of the people, um, but that requires them to stand up to, to the corporations. And how many times, Richard, do you see politicians standing up to corporations? Well, until just lately, not at all, really. Not pretty much. <laughs> it's a culture, right? Like, even with this banking closure thing, the default position I've received from so many politicians is, oh, yeah, but we can't tell, you know, commercial businesses what to do. Mm. Well, and our attitude was, who said you can't? Especially given, given that the taxpayer gives as a gift a lot of money to these banks. Mm. They exist because of the support of the taxpayer. There must be a trade-off for that. But even then, the politicians admit they have a social licence. Mm. Well, a social licence means they've got to act responsibly. Individual victims do not have the power on their own to say to the corporation, like in this case the bank, you are acting irresponsibly. They can say it, but the, but the bully bank isn't going to listen. That's why we invented governments, so that collectively we can be represented and that is the most powerful institution in the land. And when the government says, I represent the people of Australia and you are screwing the people of Australia, I'm going to tell you to stop. That's government doing the right thing. And this has happened in a mild way, a, quite a, a fairly, a fairly um, fledgling way in this inquiry so far, but it has happened. And the proof it's happened, you've got to contrast to what happened last year. Last year, they had a regional banking task force. And this was set up by Michael Sooker, the Liberal Member of Parliament, and Perrin Davey, the National Party Senator. And that task force was supposed to look at this. They set it up as a pre-election stunt. And what did they achieve? Nothing. And the reason they achieved nothing is because they didn't intend to. When they set up the task force, we'd already had a fight with Michael Sooker over the cash ban. He's the guy that wanted to ban cash transactions over $10,000 and send people to jail for spending their own money in order to please the banks. We knew who he worked for. He's the guy, if, you're, if, you're in, if you are trapped in debt right now because mm-hmm. you bought a, ho- a house after August 2019, he's the guy that you should be suing because mm-hmm. he's the guy, the assistant treasurer, who said... You should go out and buy that house. Yeah, go out and borrow. That's, our, and borrow. that's our message, he said. And most of those people are now trapped in that debt, mm. unpayable debt, because they listened to him. And he, when he said it, he wasn't doing it to benefit you. He was doing it to benefit the banks. That's who Michael Sooker is. So he took command of this process. When they set up the task force, eight of the 11 members represented banks. And what did they do? They ended up rubber stamping the bank's agenda to shut branches. 
And in the wording of the report, etc., they just accepted the premise of the bank's reasons. Mm. They just accepted them. This inquiry was the opposite because you got people on it, especially the guy who, who, who initiated it, Jared Rennick. Jared Rennick is a very honest senator in Queensland. He responded to this issue and he set up an inquiry that was quite powerful. And what it said is to the banks is, you explain to us your reasoning. You account for what you're actually doing here. Also account for the impact you're having on the towns. And under that scrutiny, Westpac has wilted. And, the con- and it's all because the process of Parliament doing its job rather than bowing to the banks is what's taken place here under people power. Right, So that's what we're trying to do when we want to set up a, a national bank, when we want to set up a postal bank. We want to bring the power of government that is powerful and it does exist, but, but only when it is, is answerable to the people and does things that are in the interests of the people is it, is it used properly. Right, And we want to make that a permanent part of the banking system. Yep. And as we've said on the show before, if the banks were telling the truth about their reason for closing these branches, they would have no problem with that. Exactly. They don't want the branches. It would go by unnoticed. Yeah, just not even a ripple. Now, here's, a, here's something else, Richard. Um, this, has, this is going to have an enormous knock-on effect. Now, I can't, we can't predict how this is going to play out yet, but last week, the, the Westpac branches in the towns of Gatton, Cloncurry, Ingham, Tully, Denmark, Kingston, Robinvale and Sale were unviable branches. Mm-hmm. Why would otherwise a commercial business close a viable branch? Mm. They must have been unviable, right? Um, yet suddenly this week, they're now viable businesses. They're viable branches. Magic. What changed? What changed, Westpac? Was there a, is there a, um, a, a <laughs> mini economic boom in those eight towns around Australia that justified this decision? Or is it possible they were viable all along? And, of course, that's the bottom line. They were viable all along. This was never about the commercial reality of running these branches. What this was about is the banks at the the top level, similar to banks right around the world, have decided that their future, what's in their interest, is to be fully digital, have a fully digital banking system, because there's so many more benefits for them with a fully digital banking system, right? There's three ways they enhance their profits. First of all, they cut a lot of expenses of maintaining branches and the face-to-face service. That's just gone, right? Um, so that's staff and that's buildings. They, they, they can just get rid of those. Um, second of all, they get all of our data. So every transaction you make, the bank knows what you're doing. And then they can, they can do all sorts of stuff with that, mm-hmm. including their AI predictive rubbish, right, where they'll predict what you're going to do with your, you know, where you're going to mm-hmm. spend your money next, right? And you'll be, <laughs> you'll be you know, like the, the Facebook thing. People started, you know, noticing with Facebook that you're talking about some product you're interested in. The next thing it shows up on your Facebook feed mm. as an ad, right? All this is very, very sophisticated stuff. So they'll be able to do that. And then the third one is take a cut of everything. They'll just program it in. Everything they do, they take a cut of. Mm. I mean, they already do with PayWave and things like that, the exactly. systems they own. Exactly. And if you don't have cash and you can't avoid that and everything's digital, then that's what you do. Oh, i got to report this. Um, look at the comments under last week's show. Oh, this, was, this was great. Last week we talked about Westpac, the same bank, in the Fin Review, in that to James Ayres, mm. um, bragging about how its solution for regional towns is totally cashless yep, towns. Yep, right? cashless towns. And remember, it used All the way. example of the country town horse race, mm. right? And it says, you know, you, you have these horse races in the country towns. There's always cash around, and that's a security risk. And you don't have to have that if you have no if you have no branches. 
we pointed out that it's only a security risk because Westpac can close the branch. If the, if the branch was there with a vault, people can bank it, no problem, yep. right? But then I pointed out, Richard, that the other problem with Westpac's logic here, of course, is the, is the communications infrastructure. And what happens, even if they have good infrastructure, when you have a lot of people come to an event mm. and they're all using the internet at once, it drains the bandwidth, yep. right? And yeah, it's bottleneck. Yeah, I, th- there's a, a person made a comment under last week's show. She actually testified to that happening in her town. The event comes to town. Nobody's internet works anymore because everyone's trying to use it at once. Westpac's. This is how out of touch. I mean, I just knew that off the top of my head. By the way, mm. this is how out of touch West, these these Westpac executives are um, when they when when this guy said that. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, the solution. They've all got a. 5G tower outside each window of their penthouse apartment. They don't care. No, exactly, exactly. Anyway, so um, uh, now back to the viability of the branches. Westpac has taken away the fig leaf. They have, they've, kept, they've announced they're keeping open branches that were viable all along. Now, I was on 6PR radio um, a couple of nights ago in Perth because they were very excited about this. The Ollie, um, Ollie over there who does the drive time, he had interviewed me earlier about this issue. Uh, he gets a lot of, um, a lot of actually a lot of lot of talkback radio is very interested in this because they get the complaints calls, um, again proving that the banks are lying when they say that everyone wants to go digital, right? Um, uh, they the yeah they were really excited about uh, Denmark and Ollie asked this question though: if Westpac can keep these branches open, what justification is there for any branch closures? And that's the point. And now, NAB. ANZ and Commonwealth Bank, who want to push ahead with their branch closures, mark my words, they are now in a harder position to justify it because their fellow big four bank, under our pressure, has, has bailed on them, right? Now, NAB is going around, look at what NAB's doing. They've gone around and, and, and cut back the hours for 64 towns in Australia, the, the NAB mm-hmm. branches. And we said that's, that means they're going to... Um, uh, shut the branch. The first one to prove that is Biggenden. Now, Richard, it just so happens, Richard's from Biggenden. Mm-hmm. I'm from Childers up the road, right? So we actually come from the same part of Queensland originally. Um, the Biggenden branch is now on the NAB chopping block, and that's, that's the first of this, bank, of this 64 list of banks that we, that we pointed out. Um, and NAB wants people to believe that the Biggenden branch is unviable, and now they're going to have a hard time explaining that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and anyone. It's the only one for miles. I mean, they, there's a NAB branch in Childers, so that's 50-something k's in one direction, but there's no more around for... But they don't... And, you know, there's a few thousand people in Newtown, right? But they don't just serve the few thousand people. All the industry around yeah, goes yeah. Well, I mean, bank. Yeah, I mean, I'm from a farm just inside the, Shire, the old Shire boundary, and, yeah, that was where we always went to do... I used to play on the steps of that bank as a kid while my dad was inside trying to sort out whatever the latest thing the finance company was doing. <laughs> do um, so, yeah, but everyone from all around the small towns in that area, they all come into... or, or used to come into, um, you know, either Biggenden there or, or Gainder, if you're further... Yeah. Uh, ..further inland, you know. Um, but... And, and, and they've already shut the one in Monto, I was informed. So yeah, which is a bit from further north up the um, North Burnett area there. Yeah. Um, that, that's the other point. That some, a lot of these branches that are left are already the ones that are left, left over from a wave of branch closures, right? Um, so anyway, 
NAB's going to be pushing ahead with that. ANZ, when they were asked to pause their branch closures, they said to the committee, oh, no, no, this is the one we made most fun of. They said, oh, no, 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 we can't pause the branches that we've planned to close because that would be too disruptive for the communities and for the staff. Mm. Oh, well. like for their sake, the ones that are going to lose their job and lose their banks, banking services, we have to keep doing this. Yep. Well, now, I'll, again, Westpac's kind of knocked that into a cop hat for them, haven't they? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, the, the other, and, and CBA. So CBA, we've, we are, we've actually spoken well of until now because CBA was the bank that first said straight away, yep, we'll pause branch closures pending the outcome of this inquiry. And now... Now they're going to be under pressure to keep those ones open permanently, which is great. But CBA, um, in the last little period, have, has tried to um, create a loophole, and they've, they've announced they're closing the, the Narang branch on the Gold Coast. Hmm. Now, the thing with the, with, the, with the Gold Coast is CBA's excuse was, oh, that's not regional. And, and this is just them looking for, this is This is them being a bank, showing their true nature. They want to shut branches, mm-hmm. Right. Um, they, they pledge not to shut regional branches, so they've picked a branch that they can say, oh, that's not regional. Except, as Dale Webster, the journalist, has pointed out in this article, by their own literature, they actually describe Narang and the Gold Coast area mm. as regional, right? By their own literature. So this is just them cherry-picking definitions to suit their purposes. Yeah. And Narang's another one of those places. It's on the sort of outer yeah. fringe of the metropolitan area of the Gold Coast, and it services all these small communities yep. out in the hinterland there and up in the hills in places that don't have internet. I was talking to a guy from up there as it happens just the other day. So, yeah, they, they, had, to get, um, they had to buy a, a Starlink connection because nothing else worked. And they're just up a hill somewhere in the back blocks, uh, just above major population centres, but there's no internet. And can I say, okay, and you've just given me, reminded me of something. People may notice right now the Australian Banking Association is running ads to warn you about scammers. And the ad is saying there's some poor guy sitting on the steps, financially ruined. And the message of the ad is the bank will never call you and tell you to transfer money. Mm. Right? That's what, that's what the ad says. The thing is... Now, that's good to learn. You know, take that seriously. If a bank calls you and says transfer money, know you're being scammed. However, what you should know even more strongly, what the, what the ad should be saying is, if you have a financial issue and it's genuine and the bank calls you, the bank will only ever call you to tell you to come to the branch and sort it out. That's what the ad should be saying. Why aren't they saying that? Because the banks want to shut the branches. They don't care that you're being scammed. They're running, these ads are cheap to them. That This just absolves them more. Now they've run ads telling you that if, you, if you've ever been called to transfer money, that um, it's not true. That absolves them more, right? This is, this is them covering their butts. Whereas if they were genuine, this is what branches are for. Yeah, let's use the convenient communications technology, digital technology, but the branch always has to be there to provide the actual service that you need, which can solve those problems. Mm. You can actually deal with a lot of financial fraud that way, right? So anyway, they, um, so when, when you know, CBA wants to just um, you know, cherry-pick definitions, this is their default setting. They have an agenda they're pushing through on. And West, there will be a knock-on effect from Westpac's um, just, uh, announcement here, right? And we'll see how that plays out. But final comment. Yes, this is people power. So stay engaged with this. You, those of you who have participated in this campaign, you have played, you're the key. You've played the most important role here. 
There's a lot of politicians around Australia jumping up and down right now to claim credit for these for this decision. A lot of them, Liberal Party and National Party politicians, and even more uh, reporters and uh, yeah, no, <laughs> radio they, announcers. The, yeah, radio who station, actually do deserve some credit. <laughs> look, I'm happy for them all to want to own this decision. This is a victory, and everyone, it's good they want to own it. But if you've been a regular viewer of this show, we did this. We took the running, working with. Like the work Dale Webster did has been extraordinary. She laid the foundation for the best understanding of this. We started getting that message out to absolutely everybody. Martin North and Dale Webster took the took the initiative to write to the committee and ask for the inquiry. Senator Jared Rennick took up the challenge of getting the inquiry up, even even involving stepping on the toes of his own LNP colleagues because they had just done this garbage regional banking task force. He got up this inquiry. And now we have a proper parliamentary process and it's working. But that started with the people on this show doing it. And so um, take, take heart from that. Give yourself a pat on the back. But also understand it's not just the, the, the broad people power idea. It's the idea of what, in principle, we're looking at on all issues, getting the parliament, the parliamentary process to work, getting the parliament to do the right thing. Because the parliament is where our power is collectively represented. Individually, we're nothing against a Westpac. Nobody is. They're a big, massive bank. Collectively, that building in Canberra has more power than all of them if it chooses to use it. And, and this, is, this also relates to the other issue we talked about last week of the Reserve Bank. Um, this is why the Reserve Bank fight is so important that we talked about. Jim Chalmers wants to give up his power to overrule the Reserve Bank's decision, the power that Curtin and Chifley fought so hard for all those years, right, and, and, and enshrined in law 78 years ago. No, no, you don't. You have The government has to be the ultimate power, and we have to make sure the government is accountable to us. All right, let's move on. This, is, this, this, this next one is related. We'll, we'll just cover it quickly, though. Just a, this is sort of breaking news. Even EU elites now oppose going cashless. And the, es- the essence of this, Richard, is the European Union is now debating a 10,000 euro cash ban, mm. very similar mm. to what they tried to enforce on Australia f- um, back in 2019 20 Mr. our mate Mr. and mm. that we talked about earlier. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of talk about, there's a lot of reporting about this now, a lot of discussion. Some of the reporting, though, has noted, some of the European reporting discussing their proposal for a cash ban has noted that Australia voted the proposed one down here in 2020. Now that, think about what that means. Because we ran that campaign then with John Adams and Martin North, etc., and and got that defeated. And, you know, Mel- Senator Malcolm Roberts moved the motion to have it thrown out of Parliament in 2020. Because we did that, now that this is being discussed in Europe, the people in Europe that are opposed to it can point to what we did in Australia and said, see, the Australians didn't want this. If we hadn't have run that fight back then, that'd be a totally different story. They'd be saying, oh, Australia's got a cash ban, a cash mm. transaction limit, right? We have made, we, we, our action then is making a difference in this debate over there. But that's not the real news. The real news is Brussels Economic Forum is held by the European Union, the European Union bureaucracy, mm. the EU bureaucracy. And they held it last week. And in the forum, that had a debate under Oxford rules. And the debate was for the motion, this forum believes that a cashless society would be beneficial for people and the economy. That was the the motion um, that was debated. Now, 
Um, and we'll run some, you can see the people debating this as I'm talking here. Before they actually held the debate, they took a poll of the attendees. Now, these attendees were the top bureaucrats of the European Union, essentially. Mm. The people who actually run the show. The people who run the show. This is the elite of the EU. Now, to their credit, when they took the pre-poll vote, pre-debate, pre-debate vote, the attendees voted against the motion 58 to 42. So they already voted it down, Mm. right? But, you know, Bit over, I mean, 58 to 42 is a good margin, but nevertheless. Um, uh, so they didn't like that idea. Remember, because the wording is, this forum believes that a cashless society would be beneficial for people and the economy. Then they had the debate. Now, the debate was waged between a representative of the Bank for International Settlements, who are the people that we're always talking about here, that, you know, get cooked up cash, uh, bail-in and all that sort of thing, and a gentleman named Brett Scott, who's the author of this book called Cloud Money that I've referenced a few... I read it at Christmas, and I've referenced it in the show a few times this year. And in the book Cloud Money, he, he actually describes the mechanics of the banking system so you understand what cash is compared to bank money, etc. right? Anyway, so he goes through that. We'll put a link to the debate below. You can have a watch of it. So they, they had the debate. goes for half an hour. Then they took the vote, the post-debate poll, and the vote... The, the attendees voted against the motion by an even bigger margin, 72 to 28. And so the, even the, and, and the thing with the European Union, I mean, they tend to, there's a lot of social engineering stuff that goes through the EU first and then gets held mm. up around the world as, oh, look, see, the Europeans have pioneered this, we should all do it, right? So these elites tend to go along with all these agendas. So it was good they were already a bit suspicious, but what this vote shows is even those elitists when they saw the facts laid out for them the way this Brett Scott mm. did, that was enough to persuade them, no, we can't go down this path, right? So it's just a vote in a, in a debate, but it's actually but the marginal shift, the shift in the margin was really, really mm. telling, right? Um, the guy who wrote this, uh, there's a journalist named Nick Cobbishley, and he basically said if, if, um, if, this, if even in the European Union elites can be persuaded by this, mm. then... Um, this is going to be a really, really hard agenda for them to enforce. And that's why we should take heart from that. That's why we need to fight this, because there's a good chance we can beat it, as we've already done so. Um, all right, moving on. Defence review is creeping fascism, subjugating all of society to war. So, Richard, as I said earlier, you've, you've, you have you've um, bit the bullet. and <laughs> Took one for the team. You took one for the team. You've studied the Defence Strategic Review or however many pages of it. Now, <clears throat> so based on what you've briefed me, and so Rich, Richard's written an article for in the latest Australian Alert, Alert Service here, um, Defence Review Enslaves Australia to the US War Machine. But you, you highlight, I'll, I'll start sort of from the back going forward. You've highlighted there's a recurring theme in the review. <laughs> Basically, that it, it, the, theme is that the, theme, the recurring theme is that it calls for a whole-of-nation approach to defence. Mm. What does that mean? Well, I mean, you, they throw this phrase around a lot, whole of government, oh, you know, we're going to unite the country behind this and that and the other. But in this case, they mean it literally, and they go through, you know, some of the prescriptions uh, uh, in, the, in the strategic review. But what they're calling for is to put every economic resource, intellectual resource of the country, every government department uh, at the service of this defence so-called agenda, to whatever extent necessary. 
Yeah, you think about that, you know, what that actually means, what countries that have gone down this road. I mean, people have heard the phrase crossing the Rubicon. Yeah. That's literally what happened, right? Um, the Roman army... Was supposed to stay outside was, the, the it, city. Yeah, the tradition was it, it disarms, changes back into the civilian clothes, sends all the weapons back to the armory, and then that, everyone goes back to their farm or their whatever, you know. Uh, but on, on that occasion, nope, the, the army, the Rubicon's the river. Yeah. And they marched across it and they installed uh, the dictator and, and off they went, you yeah. know, uh, martial law for hundreds of years. Yeah. So, and, and funnily enough, the, the Americans put the Pentagon on the other side of their river in Washington mm. to, to have that symbol, yeah. except that's just, that symbol is worth it, is meaningless now. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what we're following, right? This kind yeah, of this is being total domination. Literally prescribed by the Americans. The, I mean, the lead author of it, I think we've mentioned before, the lead author of it, um, uh, it's, it's nominally been written by these um, former defence minister, um, Stephen Smith, and the former head of the army. Um, what was his name again? Angus Campbell. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, but the, the guy who, was, who led the... the team that actually put it together, um, this Peter Dean, his name is, is on contract, literally on contract to the US State Department on these couple of projects worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, multi-year research projects about how America can get even more influence in Australia. Um, So, uh, yeah, but that's as a, as a former Australian diplomat commented on it the other day, and I've put the link in the article there, yep. a gentleman named Dennis Argel, former very senior uh, ambassador and defence official uh, between times, he said this is this is uh, this is not a democratic. This is the opposite of what a of what a uh, democracy would do. He said this is this belongs in a country that's practicing for fascism. This is, this is an entirely inappropriate, narrow-minded, chauvinistic, militaristic thing that belongs in a country practising for fascism, the submergence of the civil power and society, submergence yeah. under the military imperative. Yeah, um, which in this case is the US military imperative. Yeah. Um, this whole thing is centred around... Um, now, it's funny because initially when they announced this thing, they said that the AUKUS... Submarine, you know, the, the, the AUKUS program, the Australia, UK, US uh, Security Pact announced in 2021. That wasn't in the scope of it, they said. But they spent a lot of time commenting on it for something that's not within its scope. But the whole, that's the centrepiece of the whole thing. The entire defence, which is creating, basically turning Australia into a, officially a military, an adjunct to the US military, right? Even if all of these things... Even if we actually do get these submarines, only a quarter of them are likely to work at, at, at any one time based on the uh, problems that the US fleet, that um, ours is going to be using their technology, at least initially. The British ones are even worse. Yeah. Um, the, the outfit that's supposedly going to build the first of our original model ones in f- another 20 years or so, if that. Um, but the, the Virginia-class ones that we're supposed to be getting from the Americans first, only a quarter of them ever run at the same time, according to some yeah. uh, documents that were leaked to Newsweek a few weeks ago. It was Newsweek. So, um, but uh, they're restructuring the entire Navy around that. Yeah. 
um, the surface fleet. They've hired a recently retired U.S. vice admiral to tell them how to do that, a guy called William Hillarides. They're paying him $4,000 of yours and my and the viewers' taxpayer dollars, 4,000 of them a day. Good work if you can get it. Uh, as, a, as consulting fees and allowances, but they supposedly. Describe, but they describe all of this under the, under the title of, of um, achieving our, what they call it, sovereign capability. Sovereign, yeah, this is, yeah. <laughs> um, as Paul Keating commented a few weeks, a couple of months ago, just dropping the word sovereign into every sentence yeah. like a magic talisman doesn't make it real. Yeah, so, um, so they use the word more than ever to describe a process which is actually giving up Giving it away. They might as well... The way they're going, they'll pretty soon they'll just lock the doors, turn, turn the lights out, lock the doors, and hand the keys to the Americans, and just send everyone home from their jobs on those big offices in Russell Hill in Canberra, where the Defence Department's been for all these years, because they won't be making any actual decisions there anymore. They'll just be shuffling American paperwork. So we've we've got a, we've got a um, we've got a defence strategic review around that that's, doesn't mention AUKUS, but is entirely defined by AUKUS, yeah. which is which is about our alliance with the Americans and Brits against China, yeah. an offensive alliance against China, yeah. not a defensive alliance yeah. against China. Because it's not just the navy that they're restructuring, by the way, they're turning the army into the same. Th- they're they're modelling it um, on the remodelled version that's in process now of the U.S. Marine Corps as a as a, uh, an, a, a light mobile expeditionary force to go and do these island hopping operations like World War II. Oh. Um, and uh, scaling back the, the, uh, def- the acquisition of these uh, armoured vehicles so they'll have one air mobile light armoured brigade basically and that'll be it. Um, the rest of it is just going to be uh, foot soldiers to tag along with the Americans in their landing craft on their missions yeah, because they say, well, we've always depended on on great and powerful allies for for our defence, and we and we're only secure because of the U.S. military, the U.S. nuclear umbrella, and all of these things. But they're bringing U.S. nuclear weapons here, or at least the government has explicitly said it doesn't want to know whether the Americans are bringing them here or not. That is, yeah. you've got permission, just don't tell us about it. They're bringing B-52 strategic bombers here that have been retrofitted. They, they don't have bomb bays anymore. They're not carpet bombing um, farmers in Vietnam. They've refitted them to carry nuclear-capable cruise missiles. All right. Uh, they're bringing U.S. nuclear submarines here um, that are going to be stationed rotating through, but permanently here um, during this entire process, um, starting in, supposedly starting in a few years' time. And, uh, and whether or not they say they've got nukes on board, everyone, yeah. Russia, China, has to assume that they, they do, do and respond yeah. accordingly. And that, so that makes us a nuclear target, absolutely yep. in a war. And remind people again, um, uh, how much trade do we do with the country that this is all targeted at? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all of it? No. Nah, um, most of our, our... Well, this budget surplus that, that everyone's crowing about? Yeah. yeah. That was that was uh, China buying coal and iron ore. Yeah. Um, so we we get the, yes that's right we get these we, we get these financial windfalls from our trade with China mm. so that they can actually produce a budget surplus out of the hat. Yet in the next breath, it's that country mm. that they're determined to make us think is the threat that justifies all this, including the three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollar price tag for all yeah. this. 
yeah, well, just for the submarines, let alone whatever else the other pillars of it are, starting yeah. with the long-range missiles. And that's yeah. the other part where they're saying that uh, all of this defence, all of Australian industrial capacity uh, necessary has to be turned to these ends under the control or guidance or however they put it of the Defence Department, which means the Americans and the British, but yeah. in this case it's mostly the Americans. Um, and... Uh, the, the universities, the education programs, what they train people to do, to, to, um, you know, that's going to be prescribed. Yeah. Uh, and at the heart of it all, as I mentioned in the article, are these, they pretend that this is all about sovereignty, as we said, and they pretend that it's about maintaining the balance of power um, uh, and, and uh, supposedly in the name of collective defence, yet as a, uh, an historian named James Curran from uh, Sydney University, who has a regular column in the AFR, points out, um, those two concepts are antithetical. Collective security, collective, collective security, I think I said defence before, yeah. is, the, is the polar opposite of the old balance of power doctrine, the idea that there are usually two, you know, it's like a seesaw, you don't yeah. change anything on either end, you have your, your spheres of influence that sort of brush up against each other but aren't allowed to overlap because otherwise... This is the Cold War. Yeah. They used to call it the balance of terror in the right. Cold War. That was a more, more accurate mm. term. People lived under the th threat of instant nuclear annihilation for 40 years. And people think that's gone away? No. And our government is bringing it back explicitly in this defence review and they're turning the whole of Australia's economy to whatever extent necessary, which will be pretty much all of it, given we don't really make anything here anymore. But they've abominated this term collective uh, security to, to basically bring back yeah, they've conflated, something it doesn't mean. Yeah, they've conflated these two opposing ideas of, of strategic policy, of, mm. of, of the overarching regional and global uh, strategic architecture to create something that's less secure yeah. Yeah. or recreate it. All right, well, no, thanks for... Thanks for um, Go into that effort. Uh, Richard, like I said, you can read the details uh, in the Australian Alert Service. But now we're going to move on to a related subject um, because, you know, when you strip away all the, all the rhetoric about, you know, what a grave threat this is and how we have to, uh, you know, rise to the occasion like it's we're, we're going to fight the Germans to the last man, the last shilling like it's World War I all over again, etc., etc., etc. When you strip all that away... There's a lot of money to be made. So, finally, Morrison and Sinodinus joined the pigs at the war cash trough. And a couple of weeks ago, Richard wrote an article. He wasn't on the show for that one, though. He wrote an article about um, a couple of examples. Uh, uh, Joe Hockey hmm. and Bondi Partners. So Joe Hockey is the former treasurer and the former... But mostly, mostly flowing from his time as former ambassador to Washington. Yeah, which he just... Um, just finished, um, just recently, last yeah. year. So, so flowing from that, he's formed this outfit called Bondo Partners, and they're a private consultancy firm lining up business opportunities from AUKUS, because AUKUS means a lot of money is flowing. Mm. It, that's, that's, it's just cash registers are going left, right and centre. Yep. Right? Mostly our money. Our as, money. As, Taxpayers' as money. Said, that's, the, that's the one mug who's paying. <laughs> the, the, the reason that they couldn't, that the, the Labor government can't build social housing, for instance. So he's done Bondi Partners. Then there was Christopher Pine, and we had some, um, we had some rather accurate photos of these guys for the show. Um, Christopher Pine 
has formed Pine and Partners. Mm. In his case, it's even more blatant than than um, hockey because he was he was the defence minister and the defence materials minister for longer. The guy who's nominally in charge of all of this acquisition yeah, process and has all of this inside knowledge of exactly who's who to who. So now, if you want to make money out of the Orcas cash machine, you go to you go to Christopher Pine. Yep, and um, give him his cut. We talked briefly about Peter Jennings from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, who's now in the private sector with mm. Michael Shoebridge, also from Aspie, and there's mm. thing is called strategic analysis. And then he has his own, presumably sole uh, sole trading company too. The, the you know sole traders, the yeah. uh, independent business uh, uh, in his own name, just also uh, already get it, giving paid advice to government departments and so on. So we're highlighting these because these are the people who, in their time in government and government circles, pushed us down this path where now we're, you know, like I said, our, our, our um, best trading partner, China, is now presented as a threat and we have to put all this money into combating the threat and the money goes through these private, through these private sector um, companies. Um, so now we're talking about, I think, I think these next two trump it all, because first of all, uh, one is the former Prime Minister, Morrison, under whom this relationship so badly mm. deteriorated. And who claims to be the architect of AUKUS. The architect. We'll claims sort of, to be. We'll give you the details on that. And the other one is Arthur Sinodinas, also the former ambassador to Washington. Um, and we're highlighting him because of the network that he's actually joined. So first of all, with, with Morrison... Two things with Morrison. There is rumour in Canberra that he may be take, leaving Parliament to take up a job at a British weapons manufacturer. And that is just... Like, there's one major British weapons manufacturer, mm. BAE Systems, that is making the submarines. Mm. There's others that, 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 you know, they all sort of work in tandem with each other, etc. How could that even be thinkable, that he walks from being the Prime Minister who, who basically hatched a deal with Boris Johnson to create AUKUS, mm. to give British weapons companies hundreds of billions of dollars, our dollars, and he's going to walk out of Parliament into a job working for them. Yeah. Well, even by his own ministerial standards mm. that he instituted as Prime Minister, because these things come under, yeah. they can be varied by the government of the day, but once they're put in place, they're supposed to be legally binding. They're supposed to be binding on these ministers, and there's um, he certainly shouldn't be in there in any related industry to his ministerial portfolio. And remember, this is the guy who had, what was it, seven different ministries, yeah, five, right. you know, secret ministries. and uh, I think it was seven in total, including the, the prime minister. He might have made himself minister for BAE. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. Because so for at least 18 months um, after he leaves parliament, plus another 18 months um, uh, from if you stay in parliament, but you're no longer in, on, have yeah, those duties, yeah, yeah. Um, it's supposed to be 18 months and then the 18 months after you leave Parliament, yeah. which would make it three years, almost three years in his case. Um, yeah, or I suppose, yeah, he, yeah, how long ago it was that he lost the uh, Prime, Ministership. Prime Ministership. But uh, but as Prime Minister, um, according to some you know legitimate le- legal readings of those guidelines, um, he shouldn't ever be involved in any of this at all. Well, I, I, I agree and the whole country should agree. But what he is involved in, and this is where it gets even more interesting in some respects, is he has joined the International Advisory Board of two American think tanks. Hmm. Now, one of them he joined earlier called the Hudson Institute. And the Hudson Institute is one of these 
um, outfits that is just pretty feral in promoting the the whole American what they call unipolar or superpower yeah, yeah. dominance of the world, etc., etc. Yeah, et the, the neocon agenda, the if neocon people know agenda. that term. Yeah, but the but the other one is more recently joined as the Center for the New American Security. Now, the Center for New American Security is a is one of these. There are a dime a dozen of these think tanks. They're all funded by weapons companies, including mm. this one. And in fact, there's a big five weapons manufacturers list in America. This is funded by all of them, essentially, the Center for New American Security. But more importantly, it's who it was founded by. Mm. And that's this guy named Kurt Campbell. Now, Kurt Campbell, is, is, he has a position in the Biden administration. He's the Asia czar. Mm. I call him the strategy Svengali because arguably this whole mess we are now in with China and America and Australia is was he's the architect of the mess yeah. because it started with this decision in 2011 by Barack Obama to pivot they called it to Asia take their strategic focus off the Middle East which they'd messed up so badly with the Iraq war etc and put all their focus into Asia to confront the rising China mm-hmm. right that's what that started in 2011 this guy Kurt Campbell is the architect of that so he was in the Obama, he founded this think tank in 2007 before Obama came in. He's in the Obama administration, gets the ball rolling with the Asia pivot. And then in 2013, he goes and starts another organization called the Asia Group, same Kurt Campbell. And whereas the first one is that, that um, Morrison has joined, the CNAS, is a think tank. Mm. The second one is a consultancy a private consultancy, which is there yeah. to make money. Yeah, commercial operation. Commercial operation. To consult on these, uh, on the uh, on the ramifications of the policies that this guy wrote up. Exactly. In conjunction with others, but he was the lead architect of it. No, exactly. And um, uh, he's basically set in train the trajectory that it got much worse under Trump, of course, but it was already on that trajectory. We've tried to mm. point that out from the beginning, right? So when Trump, when Trump came in and he, he, he gave jobs to Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, Peter Navarro, I mean, these guys just, just ratcheted up the viciousness against China and made everything very, very confrontational to the extent that China had to respond to that. But China had already started responding to things thanks to the Asia pivot. One of the things I like pointing out to people is the Asia pivot started in 2011. When you've heard about China in the South China Sea, oh, China's expansionary. China's aggressive. Look what they're doing in the South China Sea. Militarizing features. That started in 2013. That was in response to this Asia pivot. That was in response to decisions like Julia Gillard did, which no Australian government had even considered ever before. It was unthinkable then. But Julia Gillard let the Americans base Marines in Darwin, Mm. right? When that happened, then the Chinese said, well... You know, you've, you're, you are, you're encroaching on us in a pretty big way. You, you, you might, if you shut the Straits of Malacca, for instance, you cut us off from our oil supply, right? We're going to have to take countermeasures, and that's when they started building up the islands in the South China Sea. Mm. So, and then, and then that, that issue has been used so much. Oh, look how aggressive China is. You know, look what they're doing in the South China Sea. Um, well, this is the guy who got the ball rolling. So he, so he set up this other group called the Asia Group, and what have they just done? They've just given a job to Arthur Sinodinus. So Arthur Sinodinus, the, the Asia Group website, one of the things they, they actually tout that they're there to make money for companies. They brag, 
They bragged that they got a defence con- American defence contractor, a top Australian contract, etc. But then this is their this is their press uh, com- release about Arthur Sinodinus. They say um, this is from the first of May. The Asia Group is pleased to announce the launch of an Australia practice chaired by former Australian ambassador to the US, Arthur Sinodinus, and the newest partner in the firm. Ambassador Sinodinus joins the Asia Group as partner and chair of the Australia practice, where he is responsible for developing and executing the firm's business strategy in Australia and supporting C-suite executives from across the Asia Group's geographic portfolio to manage evolving risks and seize emerging growth opportunities. Mm. Ambassador Sinodinus's experience in foreign service, particularly at the forefront of Australian engagement with the United States, provides an invaluable perspective, get this, at a time when multilateral engagements through AUKUS, the Quad, and the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework are all opening new pathways for commercial engagement. So all those things are things that this guy, Kurt Campbell, has helped to set up in his official capacity in the US government. And now his private think tanks and consultancies are cashing in on those things. And our two, two of our most senior government people, Scott Morrison, the prime minister, and, and you've got to look at Senator CV. He wasn't just the ambassador to Washington. He was one of the very, very senior senators in Australia for the Liberal Party. He was John Howard's chief of staff for most of John Howard's prime ministership. They are now walking from their role as having expedited this drastic shift away, anti-China, against China, into positions where they can profit and help this guy profit from it. This is shameless. Yet at the National Press Club, when Paul Keating gave that interview, Richard, he was asked mm. by um, Laura Tingle about whether he was conflicted mm. in his attitudes on China because he ha- he was the chair of the China Development Bank. Well, the chair of its International Advisory Board. And what did he say? He said, yes, that co- that they paid him for that position. They paid him $5,000 a year to be... An inter, uh, the chair of the International Advisory Board. Yeah, basically just to pick up the phone and yeah. answer questions that they had about, you know, certain but things. Let me tell you, Arthur Sinodinus and Scott Morrison and these guys that we've been talking about today, they're going to be getting more than $5,000 a year, right? This is real money. They're cashing in on, and it all comes from the Australian taxpayer. Um, all right. Yeah, we've written an article about that in the alert service as well. Morrison Sinodinus joined pigs at the Orcus trough. Um, Two things uh, before we go. Um, one is a very quick update on, on um, Julian Assange. So uh, next, on Wednesday the 24th, uh, there's a, the Quad meeting is being held in Sydney. Joe Biden is coming to Australia um, to check out our aged care homes, I believe. <laughs> anyway, um, so the, the Assange campaign is planning a protest in Hyde Park on that Wednesday from 10 o'clock in the morning to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So there's a Hyde Park protest. If you're in Sydney and the surrounds or you can get to Sydney, please go along. This is, there is, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to get people's hopes up, but we're seeing these signs that we may actually be at the point of the final, where all it requires is a final push to get Assange freed. Um, and it's not because not because suddenly our politicians have grown a conscience or anything, but because of the consistent pressure they've been receiving from the public that's been growing. And so the latest on that is last week when Mar- when um, Elbo was in London, he did a six-minute interview on ABC Radio. Three minutes was about Assange. He expressed his frustration on the issue 
a lot of what he said was pretty weak, but nevertheless, it was the longest he's spoken about Assange, even even before he was prime minister. Frankly, because his other his previous statement about Assange was just a doorstop one line. Mm. Right, this was a, a a detailed conversation. He followed it up two nights ago on ABC Seven Thirty. More significantly, Peter Dutton, who is as much a stooge of American power in Australia as anybody in Parliament. Peter Dutton came out on radio and backed Albanese up and agreed that this has gone on too long and must be brought to an end. Peter Dutton said that. So um, the former Australian Foreign Minister Bob Carr put out a pretty powerful statement where he said, if, if the Americans ignore the fact that now the government and the opposition leader are saying the same thing, they're treating us with contempt as a country, right? a client state. So um, it's building, it's building. And if you can get along to Sydney on that date, to help add to the pressure, please do. The final thing, I want to put a picture on the screen. We had a, um, a dear friend of ours who's a very important part of our organisation, Con Michalides, passed away on the weekend um, at the age of 76. He passed away peacefully in his sleep. Peacefully in his sleep. Well, the picture you're seeing there is he, um, him playing a guitar, which he took up late in life. It was, I, was, I remember when he started learning guitar and he went from knowing nothing to being very accomplished at flamenco within a, very, within a seemingly short period of time. I met Con, I, I joined the Citizen CEC then 30 years ago um, this year, back in January. My first day walking into the CEC national office here in Melbourne, I met Con on the very first day. And he was with this Iraqi neighbour of his who he'd brought into the office who could barely speak English and whose name was Sleeman Johanna, who um, a lot of you would know, Sleeman is one, now one of the leaders of our organisation and that's part of Con's legacy. Um, Con was a guy that, you know, from a, he was a member of our family and he's actually one of the people who deserves credit as being a foundation of this movement. The power that we have now as a movement is built on the support of people like Con. We appreciate him immensely. It's an honour to be able to remember him like this um, and just give you a slight glimpse into the sort of you know, people that have supported our party. We, we appreciate the support of every single one of them, but the ones that you get to work with closest, you see them, you see them most. Con, used to, Con never worked full-time in our party. He used to work for the public service, but he'd, he'd ca- he'd, every night he'd catch the train home and because our office was on his way home, he'd stop in the office every single night and we got to know him very, very well. So um, rest in peace, Con. Our condolences uh, to the Michalides family. Um, and, you know, just uh, just want to emphasise the, um, uh, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't honour his contribution enough. Um, but on that note, uh, Richard, back to, the, back to the issues at hand, which Con would want us to work on. Thank you very much for your contribution today. This has been a great victory, people, uh, in terms of forcing a bank to back down. You did it, we did it, we got the politicians to do it. So let's keep the heat on in terms of the campaigns we've got going. Still on the, on the regional banking task force and also on the reserve bank issue and making sure they don't take away that power that we've identified in our video. That being said, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Richard, like I said. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.